aware that this is live uh, um, and recording for people who access in many, many different ways. But we're thrilled to have those of you who are in the room already here in the room with us. We're going to start with a nigun before we launch into, um, into our first session here. That's one of my favorite new uh, Nagunim, okay. and um, it's from Nava Tehila. You can access it from Nava Tehila. Uh, if you don't mind putting yourself on mute, if you're, there we go, great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we start, we have a little poll. We're going to pop up a little poll here to get some, uh, some ideas flowing here. Okay, do you debate? Number one, I debate fiercely and consistently. Number two, I debate from time to time, but when I do, I really do. Number three, I argue a little, but I try to avoid debating whenever possible. Number four, I love watching others debate, but I'm the opposite of a debater. And lastly, I dislike everything about debates. Okay, so let's cast our vote here. I see uh, three of you, four of you already have. <laughs> this is great, I can see it as it comes in. Nine of you have already, we're waiting for two more. One more, if you want to cast your vote, whoever's the last person here. There we go, we got them all. And the polling, <laughs> share the results. Okay, 18% of you debate fiercely and consistently. I'd love to know who you are. I don't want to cross your path. 45% <laughs> of you debate from time to time, but when you do, you really do. 27% of you argue a little bit, but try to avoid debating when possible. And 9% of you, i.e. one of you right now, Love watching others debate, but am the opposite of a debater. <laughs> and then thankfully, none of you dislike everything about debates because you might be in the wrong class here. <laughs> so, so thank you for joining us. And I see more friends are, are, uh, are trickling in here. So thank you and welcome. Um, let me share a little bit about what we're going to be doing here over the coming 40 weeks, what we're going to be doing together. My, my premise is, is that there has been a distortion there has been a distortion of the Jewish, of Jewish intellectual history. And it's been distorted both by the Orthodox denomination and by liberal denominations. And I'll be curious if you agree with my assessment here, but the, the, um, the distortion by the Orthodox denomination is that Jewish law, Jewish law, halakha, represents the highest ideals. It represents how people should ultimately think and live. That law is the guide, primarily. And the Jewish liberal denominations have generally, you know, predominantly over the last few decades, argued that it is values. It is Jewish values that should guide us. Now, it's pretty hard to pick on either of those, because both of those are, of course, partially true. You know, it would be hard to think of Judaism as a, as a tradition without having rules and laws. Think of the Ten Commandments. Like, what are those if not rules and laws, right? Um, do not steal feels very foundational to Jewish historical consciousness, right? And then it would be hard to pick on the Jewish liberal approach as well, which is to say that things like values, um, whether that is compassion, rachamim, or it's ahava, love, or it's tzedek, justice, do not represent what Judaism is about. And yet what I want to argue over this series is that Jews historically think in dialectical tensions. Dialectical tensions between laws and values, between values and values. That we don't think merely in black and whites. Here's a law, 
end of conversation. Here's a value, end of conversation. But rather there's a deep complexity to ideas that means that it is always in dialogue, laws with laws, values with values, and different people with different people. And that is to say that it also doesn't exist values in isolation, but values within their unique historical consciousness and the unique historical context and within dialogue. Here we can channel Levinas, we can channel Buber, we can channel the sages to understand that you don't speak monologues in Judaism. We speak in dialogue. And that is why I want to frame this series as being about the dialogue, the debate of ideas. Now, let me be clear, by framing Jewish intellectual history through the context of debates, I am not arguing for relativism. I am not arguing that it is just as wonderful to fast on Yom Kippur as to not fast. It is just as wonderful to steal from your neighbor as it is to not steal. It is just as wonderful to be an advocate for justice as it is to be a, a, a cynic and not engage in societal uh, justice matters. I am not arguing for moral relativism or religious relativism. I am arguing that there is truth on multiple sides of laws, truth on multiple sides of values, truth on multiple sides of debates, and that in framing very the, 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 the 40 primary ideas we're going to look at through the lens of a debate, we can more deeply appreciate how much is at stake. Now, I also want to make clear by way of introduction that I'm not also take, I'm not always going to take a Hegelian approach. Hegel in modern philosophy means, and Rav Cook follows this approach, that there is a thesis and then there's an antithesis. And based on that debate, we reach a new synthesis. A new synthesis. That is to say that neither side of the debate is correct. Only the higher truth that emerges from the debate is actually true. Um, uh, I think that that is not, um, the, the person who just raised their hand, was that an accident? Or, oh, accident, okay. So I think sometimes that is true, that through a debate, we reach a higher truth. I think more times than not, that's true. However, other times, I think one side of the debate is, is right and the other side is wrong. Um, that, but that is still to say there is value from learning from the other side and to making space in a pluralistic community for the other side. Okay, so that is my brief introduction. Let me take questions or thoughts on that framework before we actually dive into our first debate here. Feel free to unmute yourself. Do you have questions or thoughts about our process and our learning? David. I am um, reminded of Justice Learned Hand who said, uh, freedom uh, does not lie in our constitution or in our laws. Freedom lies in the hearts of our men and women in our society. And I also go by the, the saying that the laws are a map of the territory they are not the territory. In other words, the laws are our, our meaning society's best guess as to how to live a fair and just life. Um, but that's what they are. They're, they're a best guess and laws change over time. And um, so I could, I could make an attempt at bringing a couple of the sides of the argument together that you just said, which is that, is that we may believe that halakha is the right way, the laws are the, are the right way to follow uh, our values. In other words, the best way to follow Jewish values is to follow the law. So we're not saying different things. We're in a, in a way we're saying the same thing. Um, so I think that's just a little bit of a different way to frame it, possibly to bring some of the arguments together and to put it in a different perspective. Beautiful. I love it. You know, it is very popular today to want either a guru or a life roadmap. I want my psychologist to tell me how to live. I want a self-help book to tell me what to do. I want a rabbi to instruct me how to live my life. And, I, you know, I was leading a shiva last night. 
And in leading the Shiva, I said, in honoring this person's memory, we don't need to become them. We can learn from them. We can emulate their good traits, but their life is also not our roadmap. You know, and, and it's very complex how to learn, but then to process from that learning into a broader, more complex terrain. So, so I think David's framework is really wonderful. Mike, I see your hand up over there. Yes. Yeah, and um, I think what interests me in looking at these debates is not only the issues being debated, but I see these debates in a, as a window into the time in which they yes. occurred, what right. people were thinking, what was the right. reality, what was going in. And I think by looking at a debate and the way the sides are, that, that, that makes that window maybe even more illustrative. Wonderful, wonderful, Mike. Now I wanna lay down my cards early on that I am, um, I am a believer in ideas. Now that might not sound controversial, but to a historian that is controversial because what most historians believe is that ideas are a product of their time. And I most certainly think that is largely true. However, I believe that ideas are powerful enough, the life of the mind is powerful enough that they can transcend the historical consciousness. And we see this throughout Jewish history, that Jews, perhaps miraculously or heroically, held ideas that were antithetical to the zeitgeist, that were really at odds with the culture they lived in, and were surprisingly, um, surprisingly emerging outside the historical consciousness. Now, to be sure, Maimonides' ideas emerge because Maimonides lives in Cairo, right? He lives in um, Egypt, uh, Egyptian Islam or Muslim, Muslim Egypt and, and is deeply influenced by those ideas. So we're always gonna show, as Mike points out, how these ideas are shaped by the historical context, context and yet also, I want to appreciate ideas beyond the historical context. And that is one of the beautiful things about Jewish wisdom, is that it does transcend uh, time periods. Okay, anyone else want to weigh in? Yes, Cheryl. I, I just learned uh, uh, this past Shabbat, I was learning from uh, Rabbi Gelman, who was one of our VBM speakers earlier this year. And he was talking about the Torah as law and the fact that now that we're in uh, um, Deuteronomy, uh, that Deuteronomy was kind of edited, and even though the repetition of so much of what we saw in the previous books, it was edited so that even the even our law, or even our laws can change depending upon, I guess, to go along with what you just said, which is the fact that you know things change and things are looked at differently depending upon when you're living and when you know when when something is taking place. So I just thought that was an interesting uh, thing to bring up because talking about our law per se and it's not being Im Im immovable. Yes. Cheryl, this is a very important point because, it, you know, in the ultra-Orthodox world, and here I'm, I'm not critiquing it, I'm just uh, distancing myself from it, the belief is that all oral law to emerge later was also given at Sinai. That is to say the rabbinic enterprise itself is not creative. It is merely um, uh, uncovering what was already revealed, right? And, um, that, and that is to say that they would view it blasphemous to say that Jewish law evolves and changes. But to me, it is quite clear, and I imagine to all of us here quite clear, that the, that the sages are involved in a creative enterprise, as is uh, our Jewish ideas throughout every century. And that is to say also that Jewish laws most clearly do evolve and change. Uh, there are just countless, countless examples we don't even have to look at the 20th century, just looking at the Talmud, at how they uprooted, literally uprooted countless, countless laws, such as charging interest or such as um, uh, having a monopoly in, in favor of competition, Hasagat uh, Kavul, or such as um, the Sota laws or stoning a wayward child or the death penalty, right? Over and over, the rabbinic establishment is overturning biblical laws, literally. So thank you for that, Cheryl. Okay, is there, uh, Matthew, is your hand up? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the, one of the questions in civil law, and it relates also to religious law, is what is the context, and what I'll call the legislative history of the law? Right. And there was a period of time when the courts in this country 
looked at the hearings, legislative hearings, what was the real intent when the law was written, shall we say, vaguely or incompletely, the contrary position is a strict construction of the law, which says it doesn't matter what they thought, we look at the written word, and if it was wrong, you legislatively change it. And that's a fundamental debate and dynamic. Uh, and I'm thinking of many laws today that were, have been expanded based on quote hearings and other things and a different view says, no, go back to the state legislator, make a change, which is the same in the Torah and the Talmud, which recognizes when a law was written and the, what I'll call the unintended consequences of not thinking through what's being said. Very interesting, Matthew. That's very helpful. And we're actually going to, when we get to one of these legal debates in section three, we're going to look exactly at that point. Because you, one of the interesting things is that in, in America, I, there was a book I read a few years ago uh, that explored how, even though typically a conservative jurist will be an originalist, look at, arguing for original intent in the, in, in the law, and a liberal jurist would look at, as a consequentialist. And what is, the, what is the consequence of the law we want to advocate, regardless of what the original intent was? Um, nonetheless, this scholar argued that for decades, everyone on the Supreme Court has to engage in, a, in a, an originalist type of argument, um, speaking in the, the name of original intent, which is also very interesting in, in how Jewish law plays out of those who are also go back and suggest what the original intent was. Um, and, uh, and so this is kind of an interesting create, creative and political process in how we go back and reinterpret the minds of, of, of sages, or in this case, of founding, founding fathers. So friends, process-wise, we're normally going to open up with a, about a 20-minute presentation followed by a conversation. But I did want to start today with a little bit of an open conversation about the process of what we're doing here together. And... Um, and I'm really looking forward to this journey together. So friends, today um, we, are, we are naturally starting with what I view to be one of the greatest debates in Jewish history, Hillel versus Shammai. Hillel versus Shammai. And what they are ultimately arguing about is the development of Jewish legal argumentation. I found this picture. I don't know how they took it back then, but this is exactly what they look like. Um, it, it's really uh, uh, amazing. Maybe they did a little Photoshopping there. <laughs> this is exactly what Hillel and Shammai look like. Um, you know, who knows if they had a beard or, or even a kippah on their heads or, or were darker of complexion. In any case, so much of what it means to be Jewish, whether as a matter of self-definition or as a function of Jewish identity, as described by others, has to do with making distinctions. We distinguish between day and night, between holy and profane, between the permitted and the prohibited. We're helped along in the process of making distinctions when we engage in dialogue and debate using tools that were developed by Socrates and his students in an era also marked by the very beginnings of the rabbinic Judaism from which today's Jewish thought and practice developed. And dialogical interaction is particularly emblematic of the rabbinic approach to decision-making and to thought development exemplified by the rabbis whose ideas were memorialized in the Talmud. When we think about the process of Talmudic argumentation, we naturally start with Hillel and Shammai. They were towering figures of the Mishnah who helped to create Judaism as it is recognizable to us today. By the way, just a reminder that a rabbi of the Mishnah is called a, ta a, a, a Tana, which is Aramaic for teacher, Hillel and Shammai, thus were Tanaim, and they lived at the end of the last century BCE at the and the beginning of the first century CE. They were towering figures of the Mishnah who helped create the Judaism that is recognizable to us today. Literally, they invented Judaism, right? There was a priestly model of uh, that is predates Judaism, but Judaism as a religion today is invented by the sages, building off a biblical model 
building off a priestly model, a monarch model into a rabbinic model that would be recognizable to us today. They helped set the stage for the Jewish people to transition from an ethnic group that followed a temple-based and priest-oriented religion to a more complexly defined group that adhered to a sage-based Talmudic legal tradition. It was a bumpy path. Not only were these two rabbinic figures often in strong disagreement with one another, but their students also sharply differed on issues of law, ethics, theology, and ritual practice. So how bad did it get? How bad did these debates get? This comes from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 88b. Rabbi Yossi said, originally, there were not many disputes because the Sanhedrin of 71, the court of 71 members, was located in the temple, and there were two lesser courts of 23 at the entrance to the temple. There were also courts of 23 located in all the cities, right? Very complex legal system and, and judicial system. When, uh, no, there are not, there, there's not a legislative system. There's a judicial system, which is very interesting. When, it, when a question arose, it went through the court system until the highest court, if needed. However, with the increase in the students of Hillel and Shammai, who had not served their teachers adequately, unresolved disputes increased. And here's the key line. The Torah became like two Torahs, right? Judaism was divided. There was not one Torah anymore that they were debating within one Torah. It was two different enterprises. This is what people would talk about in America today, right? Are we one country? This is what people would ask about Judaism. Are we one people? Is a, is a, is a, um, a liberal American Jew of the same religion as a Belzer Hasid in Yerushalayim? Do they view themselves as a part of the same enterprise? It's a big question. Okay, let's keep going. The Jewish people were divided on so many fronts, and yet now here too, on the development of Jewish law, they were harshly divided as well. Even though both sides are typically recorded in the Talmud, we end up almost always following the approach of Beit Hillel over Beit Shammai. Why is that? Here we see why we favor Hillel over Shammai, as explained in the Babylonian Talmud, Erevin 13b. Very famous passage here. Rabbi Abba stated in the name of Shmuel, for three years there was a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. The former asserting the halakha is in agreement with our views and the latter contending the halakha, the law, is in agreement with our views. Then a bat call, a voice of God, issued announcing the utterances of both are the words of the living God. But the halakha is in agreement with the rulings of Beit Hillel. Since, however, both are the words of the living God, what was it that entitled Beit Hillel to have the halakha fixed in agreement with their rulings? Because they were kindly and modest, they studied their own rulings and those of Beit Shammai and were ever so even were even so humble as to teach the actions of Beit Shammai before their own. So friends, there's a lot to learn from this fascinating passage. It's the most commonly quoted Talmudic passage to argue for religious pluralism. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These words and these words, opposing, contradictory, are both the words of the living God which is, by the way, a fascinating way to describe divinity as living. God is living, and God is living through dialectical tensions, living through human debate, living through values and conversation, right? living in the in-between space between different ideologies. And yet, why does Beit Hillel win out? Precisely because of the humility to listen to the view of another, to quote the view of another, to record the view of another, and to record them first. Now, someone might say this was merely strategic, right? You want to quote someone else first so you can then smash their position and show why it's wrong. And yet they emphasize not that, that they were a better debate partner because they squashed the, the opponent, 
but because they showed some validity, because they showed that position in, um, in, in its own right before moving on to theirs. How beautiful that our tradition embraces such Jewish pluralism around the words of the living God. This is so foundational to us here at VBM. And how powerful that it was humility that gave Beit Hillel the upper hand over Beit Shammai. So too in our debates today, we should record the opposing view and have the humility to study it and understand it fully, even as we advocate fiercely for our own perspectives on ethics and truth. There's a deeper worldview that emerges from the text found immediately after the articulation of that Talmudic conclusion that was just mentioned. Our rabbis taught for two and a half years, were both Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai in dispute, the former asserting that it was better for a person not to have been created than to have been created, and the latter maintaining that it is better for a person to have been created than not been created. They finally took a vote, which is a, such a, I mean, this is kind of funny, right? They voted on this and decided that it was better for people not to have been created than to have been created. But now that people have been created, let them investigate their past deeds, or as others say, let them examine their future actions. So friends, this is, this is both funny um, because the vote has no consequence and funny because normally they debate laws of great consequence. And here they're debating theology and psychology. Is it better for humans to have been created? Do humans suffer more than they experience joy? Do humans add more to the planet than they take? Are humans fundamentally more productive and generative than they are destructive? And <laughs> their conclusion is, no, the human enterprise is bad, right? Humans must suffer more if that's what they're, they're debating or be more destructive than productive or be more selfish than altruistic. Okay, but what can we do about it? Humans are here, right? We're not gonna destroy the planet. And so now that humans are here, unfortunately, Let's now be introspective and try to become better humans, right? What an amazing debate. Yes, Michael, better for who? Better for whom, right? Is it better for, for, for me? It's better that I exist, I think, right? But is it better that someone else exists? For Americans, is it better that Saudi Arabia exists? For Saudi Arabia, is it better that America exists, right? For, for, uh, for Democrats, is it better that Republicans exist? And for, for, or, for Orthodox Jews in Israel, is it better that the Chiloni, the secular, exists, right? So, People aren't so sure, right? It's good that I exist, my family exists, but who else do I want to exist, right? What a fascinating, a fascinating debate. And this is fascinating, again, because Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai are not debating law, but theology. And this is quite the anomaly. And yet, the, the, pla the placement of this debate after celebrating the authority of Hillel over Shammai, because of humility, seems to paint a broader picture. Perhaps another dimension of the favored worldview is highlighted here. Is Shammai a pessimist? Even cynical, perhaps. Is Hillel an optimist? Even hopeful, perhaps? Hillel seems to believe that the human condition has more blessings than curses. Does Shammai indeed believe the opposite? Perhaps Jewish law must be cultivated by those who seek progress, focus on blessings, and have some degree of hopeful optimism built into their philosophy. Along with a very similar thread, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel would light their Hanukkah menorahs differently. Remember this debate? Beit Shammai would start with eight candles on the first night and light one less each night based on the idea that sometimes the sacrifices decreased over time rather than increased. But Beit Hillel felt that we should only increase light in the world, and ascend in holiness, thus starting with one candle the first night and adding one candle each night, which of course is our practice today. This too could also reflect the philosophy of progress, a philosophy of hope. Another possible reason why Hillel was chosen over Shammai may be due to their more inclusive approach. 
If God realized that the world needed to be sustained more by mercy than judgment, then shouldn't humans in general, and judges in particular, follow the same approach? Here is one episode, a long episode, amidst many others in the Talmudic section, discussing how Shammai and Hillel relate so differently to conversion candidates. This is one of my favorites. This is not the most famous one, which it comes a little bit earlier in, in Masechet Shabbat, in the Talmudic Tractate of Shabbat. Nonetheless, this is amazing. There was another incident, because they quote many incidences here, involving one Gentile who was passing behind the study hall and heard the voice of a teacher who was teaching Torah to his students and saying the verse, and these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of, of checkered work, a meter and a girdle. The Gentile said, these garments for whom are they designated? The student said to him, for the high priest. The Gentile said to himself, I will go and convert so that they will install me as the high priest. <laughs> he came before Shammai and said to me, to me, convert me on condition that you install me as high priest. Shammai pushed him with the builder's cupid in his hand. He came before Hillel and Hillel converted him. Okay, I'm going to keep going, but I want to make sure you understand this so far. Okay, he, the potential convert said, convert me on condition you make me the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Shammai said, get out of here. What chutzpah you have? We don't want you to be a part of the Jewish people. Right, and Hillel says, you, come closer. I'll convert you. <laughs> Hillel said to him, to the convert, is it not the way of the world that only one who knows the protocols of royalty is appointed king? Go and, go and learn the royal protocols by engaging in Torah study. He went and, and read the Bible. When he reached the verse which says, and the common man that draws near shall be put to death. What does that mean? It means, of course, that a convert by law cannot be a Kohen. It reminds me of that famous joke you've heard of many times before. Um, that a man comes to the rabbi and says, please, rabbi, I really want to be a rabbi. Make me, I really want to be a Kohen. Make me a Kohen. And the rabbi says, why do you want to be a Kohen so bad? And he says, because my father was a Kohen and his father was a Kohen and his father was a Kohen. Right? Please, I want to be a Kohen. Right? And of course, he's already a Kohen by the fact of who he was. You didn't understand? Uh, so you can only be a Kohen by being born into a Kohen family, and a convert cannot be a Kohen. And that's what Shammai understood but by pushing him away. Right? But now, but Hillel said, go learn Torah. And the man learned for himself. The convert said to Hillel, with regard to whom is the verse speaking? And Hillel said to him, even with regard to King David, the king of Israel, King David can't be a Kohen. The king of Israel doesn't have the power. The convert reasoned, an a fortiori inference himself. If the Jewish people are called God's children, and due to the love that God loved them, he called them, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and nevertheless it is written about them, and the common man that draws near shall be put to death, a mere convert who came without merit, with nothing more than his staff and traveling bag, all the more so that this applies to him as well. And here's the closing paragraph here. The convert came before Shammai and told him that he retracts his demand to appoint him high priest, saying, am I at all worthy to be high priest? Is it not written in the Torah? And the common man that draws near shall be put to death? He came before Hillel and said to him, Hillel, the patient, may blessings rest upon your head as you brought me under the wings of the divine presence, under the Shekhinah. So friends, Hillel wasn't only more lenient in regard to conversions, but in many other matters as well. For example, Shammai believed that only the most worthy students should be admitted into the Beit Midrash, the study hall, whereas Hillel took a less elitist approach. That is found in Avot de Rabbi Natan. Shammai was strict on allowing divorces, right? You could not divorce. For very, very few reasons could you divorce, according to Shammai. But Hillel said divorce was allowed even for seemingly trivial concerns in the marriage. Shammai took a, uh, took a literalist, extreme, de demanding uh, approach, demanding that even at a wedding, pe people describe a bride 
as being only as beautiful as an objective viewer considered her to be. Whereas Hillel allowed every bride to be described as beautiful and gracious, thereby enhancing her joy and dignity. Beit Shammai argued that even if one forgot to bench to say the Birkat HaMazon, and they left the place they had eaten at, they needed to return to where they ate to recite the, the, the blessings after meals. Beit Hillel, however, said that one can bench in their new location. It has been argued that they shared very different political worldviews as well, and that Beit Shammai, historically, was more aligned with the hawkish zealots, whereas Beit Hillel consisted of more political pacifists, and that because of their political differences, Beit Hillel was alienated from prayer spaces led by Beit Shammai. There's a lot of historical academic work showing how Beit Hillel gets excluded from the Beit Shammai establishments, not because of halachic debates, but because of militaristic debates. Thus, their view of how to engage with the oppressors, the Romans, colored their rulings regarding Gentiles in general. It got so nasty that the Talmud says that Beit Shammai, ready for this, would even kill members of Beit Hillel. It says this in the Jerusalem Talmud, Shabbat 1-4. It sounds like it's all rosy pluralism, but there was even murder involved here, the sages said. As the matters cooled down, the positions of Beit Shammai were dismissed and became irrelevant. From the, even though they were recorded, they lost their political weight based on the extremity of those views. Nonetheless, these debates matter deeply in our tradition, not only because of the importance of the content, Matt, but also because of the process of the debate itself. The rabbis share here in Pirkei Avot, one of my favorite um, parts of the Talmud, every dispute which is for the sake of heaven in the end will be permanently established. And every debate which is not for the sake of heaven in the end will be permanent will not be permanently established. What is an example of a dispute for the sake of heaven? The dispute between the house of Hillel and the house of Shaman. And what is an example of a dispute that is not for the sake of heaven? The dispute of Korach and his band from the Torah itself. There was a de facto respect built into the debates of Shammai and Hillel because both were working to serve God as it was perceived. Motives in a religious debate are crucial. They are not about power and about ego. They are about the community and the communal needs. They are about avodat Hashem. It is all too easy for ego or power to take over as we see in political discourse. But if one is serving God and maintains respect and de decency in the course of a debate, they're serving higher ideals. That dispute especially should be recorded and studied. Perhaps out of a recognition that Hillel Shammai divide was problematic in the short term, but ultimately provided the Jewish people and indeed the world with an example of a debate that was hard fought, but based mostly on good faith differences in outlook that contained an element of purity. A fast day was instituted because of the conflicts between those two camps. This is recorded in the Halachot Gadolot. We no longer observe this fast day, but there was a fast day observed for a long time because of the way that this emerged. And as if to underscore the tension between the image of an unbridgeable disagreement and the importance of respect, even love, for those with whom we disagree, even with all of their disagreements, members of Beit Hillel and of Beit Shammai continued to marry one another. It says this in the Mishnah of Yavamot 1-4, that the house of Beit Hillel and of Beit Shammai would continue to marry each other, even though they were so divided. Interestingly enough, there were even rare cases of the two camps switching their respective views, teaching us the need to be flexible in our perspectives, right? Like if you go on Twitter every day, you'll see this all the time. Oh, you're right. That view I held so strongly, I now abandon. I agree with your view. You have convinced me that you are right and I am wrong. I retract the view I have fought for, right? That's what you'll see if you go on Twitter each day. 
people retracting their views based upon learning and listening, right? <laughs> One fascinating such case involves the application of tikkun olam, repair of the world, to a question about nothing less than freeing slaves. Here's the Mishnah in Gittin. One who is half slave and half a free person, he serves his master one day and then himself one day. The words of Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai said to them, you said it right to Kantem for his master. For himself, you didn't set it right. To marry a married servant isn't possible because half of him is free. To marry a free woman isn't possible because half of him is still slave. So would you cancel his obligation to reproduce? Let me unpack that so that makes sense. Beit Hillel says, it's okay. Half, half free, half slave, it's okay. Let him have half of his life free, half of his life is slave. Beit Shammai says, no, he can't get married. He can't marry a slave because he's half free. He can't marry a maidservant because he's half a slave. And now you're going to bar him? You're going to bar him from Peru or Vu, being able to have children? But isn't it true that the world wasn't created except for bearing fruit and reproducing, as it says in Isaiah, not to be waste? Did God create her, the earth? To be settled upon, did God form her? Rather, because of setting right the world, they said, they force his master, who must make him a free person, and write a contract for him to redeem the remaining half of his value. And Beit Hillel turned to teach according to the words of Beit Shammai. Whoa! He says, you're right. I'm totally wrong. Right? Beit Hillel says, I can't believe I have that view. Beit Shammai, you've convinced me. You've convinced me of tikkun olam. Right? Remember, because tikkun olam is just a 20th century liberal distortion, right? No. Nope. The rabbis say tikkun olam is setting right justice. This is in the Mishnah 2,000 years ago. We as Jews need to repair the world and bring liberation to the world. And that's what's called tikkun olam. And Hillel says, you're right. I listen to your view. I listen to your view and I retract. We need to make sure that that slave is freed. That slave is freed so that he can marry and have the dignity of marriage and of freedom and of having children. Fascinating debate. Okay, we're gonna. I'm, I'm, I'm moving to the conclusion here and to the conversation. How often today do we debate closed-mindedly? What if we could truly be open to changing our view? So friends, now it's logical to conclude that Hillel and Shammai disagreed on everything. One might, one might conclude they, they disagreed on basically everything. But Maimonides explains that that was not at all the case. He writes, here's Rambam, when two people are identical in understanding and in study and in knowledge of the principles from which they learn, there will not occur at all between them disagreement in what they learn by one of the, of one of the hermeneutical principles. And if, they, if there will be disagreements, there will be few, just as we have never found disagreements between Hilam Shammai, other than in a few laws for their methods of study and all they would learn by one of the principles were similar to one another. And also the correct general principles, which were held by one, were held by the other. And so friends, what Maimonides is reminding us here is that Hillel and Shammai agreed on 90% of matters, but we record their debates and so it seems like they disagree on everything. I would suggest this is true about humanity that 99% of human beings agree that we should feed our children. We should go to work each day. We should be honest. We should live by noble ideals. And yet the, the world is fixated naturally on conflict and on disagreement, religious conflict, political conflict, geopolitical conflicts, economic debates, such that we can come to the conclusion that the world is vastly divided and in a mess of conflict. America is vastly divided, right? To the point that we no longer can see the common ground where we even agree and share the most common principles of human decency. So friends, to conclude, here we learn yet another important lesson from the history of Jewish debates. 
We should not only focus on all that we disagree on, but we should strive to see all of our commonalities as well. It may seem in America that Democrats and Republicans disagree on everything, but is that true? Is it true that Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews have nothing in common in their worldview? Do Iranians and Israelis have completely different visions on what constitutes a good life? The differences are real, but the commonalities and shared values can be built on and developed to mitigate the fallout from debates where there are disagreements. So friends, here I conclude um, exploring just the surface of the complexity of, of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, but hopefully giving us enough of a taste of that um, in order to show that our first debate is not just about Hillel and Shammai, but is ultimately about, is ultimately about one of the most foundational periods of Jewish history, intellectual history, and the most consequential, the creation of the Talmud, the creation of Jewish law, the creation of modern Judaism, the, 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 the creation of, of the Jewish halachic debate. And so the last thing I want to say before I open it up for, for conversation, and of course, not only for conversation, but also debate, um, it should go without saying that um, people should feel free and, and even be invited to disagree with any interpretations, is that I started here, but we are not going in historical order. We are going to go back to the book of Genesis and debates that happened over there. We are going to go forward to the 21st century and skip around for various reasons that will become more clear later. So let me pause here. I'd love to hear from some folks. Feel free to unmute yourself. And if you're on the Facebook Live, feel free to, to type over there. And we have folks monitoring that who can channel that to me as well. Is it fair to say that Hillel had greater wisdom and understanding of the psychology of people in reference to his decisions? That is a beautiful question, Eileen. Um, I think that is one very fair interpretation of this. If I was to make an, uh, an opposing uh, argument, um, what is the right way to parent a child? Is it very liberally and loosely, or is it with a lot of structure and very strictly? This is a great debate among parenting. It's the same question that teachers and schools debate. How much structure and how much freedom? How much strictness? and how much looseness, right? Shammai thinks it should be hard to, hard to convert to Judaism. Shammai thinks Judaism should be really strict and difficult. Hillel thinks it should be easier to convert. It should be easier to be Jewish, right? It should be looser. And that's a fascinating debate, right? And um, that's only one facet of it, but I, but I think I think here, while my, my own religious worldview more aligns with Hillel, I, I think that um, at the end of the day, they needed to halakhically come to a conclusion to go after Beit Hillel. But once again, this aligns with my worldview that that is why the halakha is not enough. The Jewish law is not enough to point to a way to live because the way to live is found in between the two of them. It, is, it emerges from the space of the debate rather than the answer of Hillel, right? It emerges from the tension rather than the answer. Because the answer of Beit Hillel is not our answer today. Yes, we light the menorah like Hillel. We're gonna, he gives us the answer, right? Somebody today, if they, if they lit eight and then went down, would, would be doing something we would call un-Jewish. Yes, they could say, no, no, I'm doing by Beit Shammai. How can you say that's un-Jewish? We could say, no, no, it is un-Jewish because we have 1,800 years, 1,900 years of precedence that that's not how we do it, right? But I'm very wary of anybody calling something un-Jewish, right, in general, and especially something that has a Talmudic source, right? Um, and so, but anyways, Eileen, I think you're right in my view that the reason I would say Beit Hillel is a more wise camp than Beit Shammai is not because of the strictness or looseness, not because of the orientation to converts. It's not because of the political pacifism versus hawkish, uh, hawkish nature. Um, it's not because of, of, of a bunch of other 
dimensions that we pointed to around um, around divorce law and, and and the like. But it is about it is about the humility of how they embrace debate ultimately. Um, the other thing I felt was that Hillel had respect for these people, and Shammai um, may have had a tempered respect in that Shammai felt he had the answers. I don't feel that Hillel perceived himself to be the be all and the end all. Right, thank you. Thank you very much, Eileen. Beautiful, someone else? Yes, Scott. Yeah, just a, a quick and probably dumb question, but you talked about the progression from um, the biblical model to priestly model. Um, where, where do they come into play kind of historically? How, how would you characterize them? Are they like thought leaders to use like today's modern jargon? Are they like practicing uh, Jewish leaders that are trying to kind of flesh out the faith? Like how, how, how would you characterize them? Scott, I love that question. Um, what city are you calling in from? Phoenix. Oh yes, Phoenix, good. Okay, I know, I think I see a cactus outside your window actually. <laughs> <laughs> you probably see a few, yes. Okay, wonderful, thank you. So um, it's a wonderful question. So let me just, let me um, very briefly map out this, um, this trajectory. And, uh, and, I, it, and it's not a dumb question at all, it's a fantastic question. Because I think we often don't appreciate just how radical these paradigm shifts are. And I wanna suggest we're in a new stage now as well um, around, around this shift. Initially, we have, um, we have direct God-human encounter, right? God speaks to people directly, okay? That then transitions into prophetic Judaism, where there are very specific and limited channels of where God speaks. Prophetic Judaism is partnered with pre, uh, uh, monarchy Judaism, that every king is assigned a prophet to critique him, right? There, are, there is a king who holds power and a prophet who critiques that power structure. Um, and that is the power structure. Then we have priestly Judaism. Now, of course, there is some overlap here. Um, but priestly Judaism moves the center from the kingdom to the temple. And the temple is where the priest, the Kohen Gadol, is the central figure. Um, and make no doubt, um, uh, let there be no doubt that in the destruction of the temple, this was not joyous for anyone. This was about a massacre. This was about a, a destruction. This was about dispersion. But this was also a political win for those who wanted the transition from priestly Judaism to sage Judaism. Um, give me Yavne was a new era. So that was now the, the creation of rabbinic Judaism. And today I want to argue that we're moving to a new era. We are moving to a new post-rabbinic era that is beyond the direct God intervention as we see in the story of the Exodus. It's beyond prophetic Judaism. It's beyond priestly temple-based Judaism. It is beyond the sage Talmudic rabbinic Judaism into a new era. And I'm not going to flesh out what I believe that is about now because that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. But to answer your specific question, I think there's two different ways to frame how, I, how we think of who those figures are. One is politically. These are the political establishment. These are the people who control the laws. These are the people who control the discourse. They control the taxation. They, can, they even control, um, in theory, life and death. They have the power of life and death. The other way to think of it as a religious construction separate from a political entity are that these are ultimately um, the religious arbiters of religious experience, right? These are the people you make an animal sacrifice to. These are the people who lead um, religious service. These are the people you go to for religious answers. This is part of the reason why I suggest the shift today, because I think the rabbinic model as authority-based is something we have tr largely transcended. And so um, uh, there's a lot more to say about that, Scott, but, but, but I hope that can suffice for the moment. 
I'd love to hear from someone else. In, um, in the context of the times we're living in now, I think in understanding the issues of the debate, but also what is really being debated. Is it, is it a struggle for power and the issues being debated are used as tools in the power or is it a true interest in developing thoughts and understanding beyond and, and, and really understanding what is underlying the debate and what's really being debated? Beautiful. I think that is so beautiful, Mike. And I think that that um, this is one of the ways, this is one of the ways that I think um, is not only intellectually interesting, but also the way to heal divides. Because if we just look at conclusions of laws, the opposing side is oftentimes completely outrageous to us. But as soon as we look at the values being fought for underneath the surface, we can then see why we can still reject the conclusion, the nobility of the opposite side. And um, let, let me think if I can pick something that wouldn't be too controversial. <laughs> Everything is controversial these days. Um, uh, okay, uh, let's say taxation, taxation. I'm sure we have fiscal conservatives here and I'm sure we have fiscal liberals here. But I think if we look at the nobility of both sides of that, those who argue for a welfare state, who argue for the needs of the vulnerable and how we have to redistribute wealth to ensure that the vulnerable who can't live off their wages have their healthcare needs met and their education met and, and the, the needs for social security and all the needs that come from ta taxing the rich. And I'm sure we could have a noble uh, a presentation from those who truly view the redistribution of wealth as robbery, uh, that this is stealing one's hard earned labors, right? That, the, of what they have worked for, that this is a violation of liberties and freedoms. If we just look at the conclusions, we can fight hard for our own side. And yet it's hard to not see the nobility of, of both sides. And I think that that's also true here in what Mike is offering what Mike is suggesting to us here, that in every debate, there is a underlying political motive, an, uh, an underlying psychological dimension. There is an underlying um, uh, interest that is involved. Um, and, uh, and, and we will see that throughout. And I think one of the things we're gonna try to do, Mike, is try to unpack that without trying to play God and pretend like we know the original intent that people in debates had, try to unpack what was ultimately at stake for them here, right? What were Hillel and Shammai really arguing about? And as I tried to show in the menorah debate, it wasn't just the legal structures that they, that they employed, the hermeneutical principles that they invoked in order to come to their conclusions around how to light a menorah. But this is ultimately about a view of progress that they are debating. So too around conversion. This is not only political about how they view Gentiles, how they view in inclusion. This is fundamental about what they think Jewish identity is about, philosophically about how they understand the barriers to ex of exclusion and inclusion. And I think and if so I add one, add one more thing, yes, please do. I, I think that there needs to be an underlying understanding and agreement is the debate and the issues. Is it a zero sum game? Anything I win, you lose? Or is it a learning thing where we can both learn? And I think that has to be a conscious understanding of that sort of approach to, to what's being looked at for it to be productive. Amazing, amazing, thank you for that. And I think that um, there are spaces in our life and in our community and in our nation where we don't strive for consensus, understandably. We operate by principle rather than by consensus. And there are other spaces where we can only reach some middle ground of unity by trying to get to that place. And we can only do that through that hard uh, deliberation, as you said. So friends, I, I, to give us a little introduction to what's coming next, next week, we are jumping to the 20th century. We are jumping to the Bronx, Bronx, New York, the debate of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg versus Rabbi Mayor Kahana. Mayor Kahana is going to have an actual debate and we will look at some of the script on how Israeli sovereignty and Jewish power should be demonstrated 
in a post-Holocaust era. So it's not the natural uh, next step from Hillel and Shammai, or is it actually the next step? I can't wait to see you next week. We will get more to the conversation earlier because there'll be less introduction. Thank you for those who are in the Zoom. Thank you for those of you who are on Facebook Live. Thank you for all of you who are on podcast and video. I can't wait for this journey with you. As always, please send feedback on ideas you have in our journey together. Have a wonderful day.